until a call comes for you to cry elsewhere. We must all cry, but tell me, must our tears be white? This is hell. It's Monday, August 1st. August 1st already. It's a moving weekend. So make sure you hit the alleys because everybody is throwing away their stuff. And we record here in Chicago where one time I read Chicago throws away 10 billion tons of trash every year. That's picked up in a vehicle that burns fossil fuels and becomes very heavy as they compact all the garbage throughout the day. And then people go buy new stuff because it's capitalism. Anyways, <laughs> I'm here, this is Lindsay, soundboard producer of uh, This Is Hell, here because Chuck is on vacation. So I hope some of you are glad to hear that's not because he's sick, he's not in the hospital. So, yeah, good for Chuck, taking a vacation for once. Might, it must be nice. <laughs> I, I'm kind of tired. I'm kind of on vacation mode too, since everybody else is. So I pretty much just wanna hit play here on this here episode. I'm a bit busy this week because my father, who lives in Phoenix, is visiting me next week. He's coming for a postman's convention. I'm not sure exactly what it is yet, but my dad's a letter carrier, and apparently a lot of them are coming to Chicago. So, hope they don't get COVID. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I'm here filling in, because Sebastian is also on out of town. I assume vacationing. I hope living it up. But Dan, our other soundboard producer is going to be coming in tomorrow and Wednesday to do some limbo episodes as well so that we have some content to play back on the radio in on Saturday. So that's going to be cool cuz Dan, he knows a lot of the good interviews. He's got a whole list somewhere that he's just waiting to break out and so make sure you tune in for that. Um, you know, I'm also tired because back in Phoenix, my grandma, who's 89, she was sick in the hospital last week with an ulcer. So she's hopefully getting better now. She's out of the hospital. Terrible place to be if anybody's ever been. I think uh, Chuck was talking about that <laughs> throughout the last few months, how bad the hospital is. Yeah. Um, so anyways, shout out to my grandma i hope you feel better and also to everybody else who is sick right now um covid monkeypox every other illness in the universe there's a lot of them so sending some healing vibes to you guys and you know to everybody who's ever been sick um congratulations if you became not sick after becoming sick. Some people, you know, chronic illness is a thing. And I mean, we live in a sick society. Everybody, everybody's got chronic pain. Everybody's got something like in those people who are like, oh no, I'm healthy. Like I exercise, I eat right. I'm perfect. I do everything right. No, there's something else going on there. There's something else going on, something they're hiding. I, I'm sure of it. <laughs> Everybody's got something. Because um, this is hell. Health. This is health. This is going to be a segment on uh, health. I'm planning here to play back this interview from 2015. 
uh, titled um, Bad Science and Worse Politics Keep Toxic Chemicals in the Environment. I think this is something the people need to hear over and over and over again because this was recorded on November 28, 2015. It's been almost seven years and like the intro of this episode it could just have been recorded yesterday, you know, based on what they're saying of just chemicals just being everywhere, politicians doing nothing to regulate industry that is the only people who are doing it, and, like, everybody else just has to live off of, like, what they can in the time that they have when they're not working, you know. <sighs> Anyways, yeah. I recommend making your own soap and things because... Who even knows? Who even knows what anything is in all the stuff that we put on our body daily, every single day? Think about soap. I make soap because I use it on my hands every day. Wash dishes with it and eat off of them every day. That stuff adds up. And that's that's not even the stuff that I don't know I'm exposing myself to. <laughs> you know, because that's everywhere. You know, I think I, I read there's a... UIC has an environmental contamination map that shows you like where these industries are polluting and it like shows you how many schools are around it and whatnot. And so I looked up Rogers Park. There's a big electricity company just down the street on Ridge. It's called like SNC Corporation. And so heads up Rogers Park. Stay away from there if you can. Stay out of the uh, wind <laughs> if it's blowing past that place because it's got lots of toxic uh metals and whatever else there so anyways this episode bad science and worse politics keep toxic chemicals in the environment is an interview with journalist valerie journalists valerie brown and elizabeth grossman they explain how chemical industry secrecy and weak government regulation result in harmful chemicals in our homes and workplaces and why a revolving door between corporate and regulatory bodies is harm to not just health and the environment, but science, politics, and the regulatory process itself. So, you know, there are a lot of, we have a lot of interviews about the environment, climate change, contamination. I wanted, I almost wanted to play this one here from April 16, 2016 with Laura Orlando called America's Water Safety Issues Run Far Beyond Flint. And this is on my mind lately because I feel like I just am always coming across like in the healthcare industry where people are trying to make money, you know, off of sickness. You know, people are always advertising their whatever it is as like the magic cure for something because, you know, wouldn't we like to just have a simple solution to everything? But I mean, that always just crumbles and falls apart like the second that you think about systemic inequality and exposure to environmental contamination that makes things sick or makes people sick and like that people really have no control over when the government is permitting it making it happen so that these companies can keep making money i mean sing about monsanto and like all of our food being farmed with glycosate or however you say it i don't know i don't want to talk about it anymore <laughs> I'm gonna let, I think I had all these notes, but now they're all jumbled up. So, um, yeah, like I said, I'm tired. Just, just last, just beware of the gurus and the people who, snake oil salesmen. Good vibes to everyone healing out there. Bad vibes to the snake oil salespeople. Because they live in a toxic society, too. The gurus, I mean, especially if we're talking about America, I mean, I don't know if every place in the world is, like, extremely contaminated by industrialism, but I don't trust anybody who's drinking this American water and breathing this American air to, like, <laughs> you know, really, really, you know, be above anybody else. We're, like, all exposed to it, so... Just trust how you feel. Just listen to your body and how it feels. And I guess I think that's a... Alright. Let me hit play. This is hell. 
Biologists have been warning us for decades about risky, potentially hazardous, if not deadly chemicals. Yet to this day, these bad chemicals are found in our homes, our workplaces, and just about everywhere we go. And they're not only poisoning us, but we're passing on that poison to generations to come. Here to explain the bad science behind bad chemicals, Valerie Brown and Elizabeth Grossman co-wrote the In These Times story, Why the United States Leaves Deadly Chemicals on the Market. A six-month investigation finds that the revolving door behind, between government and the chemical industry has led the EPA to rely on easily manipulated research. The result? Toxic substances remain in everyday products. So hello to you, Valerie and Elizabeth. Good morning. This is Valerie. Elizabeth? And this is, yes, I'm here too. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having both of uh, you on the line. I really appreciate it. Valerie Brown is a journalist specializing in environmental health, climate change, and microbiology. In 2009, she was honored by the Society of Environmental Journalists for her writing on epigenetics, which I have no idea what that is. Elizabeth Grossman is an award-winning journalist specializing in science and environmental issues. She is the author of 2011's Chasing Molecules, Poisonous Products, Human Health, and the Promise of Green Chemistry. How much, let's start with you, uh, Valerie, how much can we blame environmental factors for societal problems that we may not think are determined by our physical world? For instance, Back in January 2013, Kevin Drum at Mother Jones, and I, I, I know, consider the source and stuff, but posted an article with links to study after study, supported by an astonishing body of evidence. Drum wrote, we now have studies at the international level, the national level, the state level, the city level, and even the individual level. Groups of children have been followed from the womb to adulthood, and higher childhood blood level, blood lead levels are consistently associated with higher adult arrest rates for for violent crimes. All of these studies tell the same story. Gasoline lead is responsible for a good share of the rise and fall of violent crime over the past half century because once the gasoline lead was taken out, then all of a sudden we saw a drop in crime. In fact, it's actually called the lead crime correlation. If you want to comment on that specifically, you can, but Valerie, my bigger question is how uh, much are our actions determined or at least affected by reactions to chemicals? Are problems associated with, say, poverty caused or exacerbated by these kind of chemical environmental factors? Well, I think it's uh, it's a great deal um, of uh, uh, illnesses are uh, at least partly caused by uh, exposures to uh, chemicals in the environment. Um, I can't put an exact number on it. I have a sort of vague memory that there's like 30 percent or so someone has um, attached, and Lizzie will probably know the closer uh, figure, but um, I just wanted to read a quote from our story that we included. It's from the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics. Uh, they released this statement in October of this year, and they said, and this is professional medical um, clinicians um, and researchers, and they wrote, we are drowning our world in untested and unsafe chemicals, and the price we are paying in terms of our reproductive health is of serious concern. So that's just the reproductive part. That's not cancer. That's not other other kinds of, um, you know, heart disease or uh, metabolic syndrome or any of those other things. So, you know, I think the message is that we need to always look at chemical exposures when we're looking at illness to see if we can tease out the role of those chemicals. But we shouldn't ignore them altogether. Elizabeth, we uh, are we in a world with far more dangerous chemicals in it today due to advances in technology and a lack of resources, oversight, and chemical industry, and the, uh, the presence of chemical industry influence over policymaking? Or are there fewer chemicals in our environment today because of growing knowledge of chemicals' effects and public outcry about their impact? Are we in far more dangerous chemical world today than we were in the past? Because I mean, before the Clean Water and the Clean Air Act, weren't we far more susceptible to have access to dangerous chemicals than we are today? Uh, um, the answer to most of those questions is is, is yes. Um, despite the rise in the number of laws and ways we have to regulate chemicals, there are more chemicals out and about in the environment than ever before. And as um, numerous scientists have said, you know, we're, the world is just awash in these chemicals, and our indoor environments, our outdoor environments are filled with more and more synthetic chemicals that we really don't know the full 
environmental health effects of than ever before. And one of the really important points that is worth thinking about is that when chemicals are studied for their health effects, and especially when they're regulated, they're regulated one at a time when, in fact, everybody is exposed to mixtures of chemicals. And that's really complicated to study, and we don't do a very good job of that at all. So the short version of an answer is that despite the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and all of the many regulations that came into effect in the late 1970s and particularly the 1980s, we're not doing a very good job of keeping people from being exposed to hazardous chemicals. Uh, Elizabeth, let me just follow up on that real quick. So what kinds of, because this is what the, you know, the chemical industry would argue, what kind of conveniences do these chemicals create? Because we can talk about the costs of those chemicals, but I'm certain the industry is raving about their benefits to society, maybe even arguing that it outweighs any possibility or potential for poisoning. Um, absolutely. That is the, the line of argument. And there's absolutely no doubt that these the many chemicals that have come onto the market um, in the past 50, 60 years or more, and the number of products that are made with them have indeed made life far more convenient, and we wouldn't have all sorts of really useful and, you know, often, you know, really beneficial products. But the problem is, is that these materials haven't been scrutinized as well as they should have been. So it's not exactly an either-or trade-off, but that, yes, indeed, is the law in the chemical industry um, will put forward that the benefits outweigh the cost. Uh, uh, Valerie, you write closer to home. Americas are routinely sickened by toxic chemicals whose health effects have been long known. If these health effects are long known, then what explain why the market hasn't corrected the problem? That is, why haven't the costs of putting hazardous chemicals into the environment overwhelmed the profits made from these chemicals? Because my MBA friends tell me that capitalism and the market are supposed to insure against this kind of poisoning by making it too costly to put poisonous chemicals out in the public. Costs like lawsuits, bad publicity, if not criminal charges, leading to tons of legal overhead. True, and we heard this from several of our sources. Uh, it's true that at this point, uh, most of the action on uh, dangerous chemicals has come about as a result of uh, citizen action rather than government regulation. Um, there's a woman named Shauna Swan who's done a lot of research on phthalates, which are an ingredient in plastic. And um, she did a study uh, showing that there were um, various developmental problems from exposure to um, phthalates in the womb. And um, after she did that, uh, some citizen groups uh, worked with, you know, the results of her study to get uh, phthalates taken out of baby products. So it's true that in a certain way that it's not exactly the market, I think, as economic theory would describe it, but um, citizen action can make some difference. Um, but the other problem is we don't have a level playing field of science. We can't go to our science and, and look at it and find a rational sort of uh, way to make a decision based on the available science because of the things that we outlined in our story and because, uh, as we've noticed with the recent um, uh, flap over Exxon having known about global warming for decades and decades, they did a lot of internal research, which they did not share with anyone. And the same thing is true of chemical companies, they, at the very most, they will share their internal research, research results with the regulators, as, like at the EPA or the Food and Drug Administration. But if you want to go out and review the science, you're not going to know after you've read the science exactly what the right answer is for you know, a long list of chemicals. So, uh, Valerie, then, does is that why 
the public accepts the chemical industry's claims that they do not contribute to any environmental hazards, that they, it's because of this kind of misinformation or disinformation, whatever you want to call it. Because when I was reading your article, one of the things I was thinking about was uh, climate change and how there was a you know, industrial uh, denialism that affected that discussion. And so I started wondering, to what degree is there some sort of chemical poisoning denialism that Americans have believed because they want to believe uh, the corporations that provide the chemicals that make our lives more convenient. Well, yes, there, it's, it's partly that, and um, I notice this in my own behavior even. You know, I will sometimes drink, um, you know, water out of, a, out of a bottle that has polycarbonate plastic in it. And I know that there's bisphenol A in that bottle, and that some of it's going into my body while I'm drinking this water, right? And I know the health effects of bisphenol A. But I sort of do a, a kind of rationalization process where I go, oh, yeah, it's in there. Yeah, this is bad. But, you know, right now I'm really thirsty and this is my only option. And I'm just going to hope that my adult immune system is going to be able to sort of deal with it, you know. And I think a lot of people do that. A lot of the news about chemicals, you know, especially when you add it to things like climate change, and mass extinctions, and you can go on and on, um, it's really depressing to face the actual truth and even more um, kind of daunting to try to figure out where to go from here, you know. So I think a lot of people just do that. They sort of, if they read something that says, oh, never mind, you know, BPA doesn't really have those health effects, they might take that and go, okay, whew, you know, I can still drink out of this bottle. So, uh, Elizabeth, you write that the chemical industry exerts political influence, that that, that uh, exertion of political influence is very well documented. What our investigation reveals is that 30 years ago, corporate interests began to control not just the political process, but the science itself. Industry not only funds research to cast doubt on known environmental health hazards, it has also shaped an entire field of science regulatory toxicology to downplay the risk of toxic chemicals. Elizabeth, does that acceptance of bad science cross party lines? Can we vote this bad science out of office? Um, I'm not sure that this can be voted out of office. And I think one of the things that we discovered in our research and why we wanted to actually write the piece is that the science that we focused on and that has so been shaping how chemicals have been regulated over the past several decades, is so far from the surface, it's so far behind the curtains and out of public view, that it makes it really hard for the general public, let alone um, politicians, policymakers, to get a grip on. And that's actually one of the reasons we thought it was worth bringing this to light. it's, it's, it's really complicated when it comes to voting and when it comes to making policy. And one of the things that we discovered has been happening consistently, and it's for lots of complicated reasons, including this endless revolving door between industry and agencies like the EPA and FDA and these private consultancies that so often work for the chemical industry is that when there is what should be a public regulatory process, a process that's very well outlined in policy of how chemicals should be evaluated for regulation, there are all sorts of opportunities in that process to put in studies that have been generated by the chemical industry that are exactly of the kind that we highlight in our story that downplay the risks of chemicals. And this has happened consistently. And as it happens so often, the regulatory agencies have deferred to the science. And it just results in these endless delays. And as a result, after, you know, it can often be several decades of looking at a single chemical, those products are still on the market. So it's not quite 
a process that lends itself to a yay or nay vote. It's very convoluted. It's long and drawn out. And the bottom line is that the extended process favors the chemical staying on the market and therefore favors the industry interest. You know, uh, Valerie, this would make me think that the control the chemical industry has over the regulatory process within the U.S. government is incredibly unique because they have come up with a science that then also supports it. So it's not just the revolving door. It's not just the influence of corporate money. It's not just the political influence that people may have. It has something to do with something something that's more concrete, like a science. Is this unique in that an industry has created a science to regulate their own potentially hazardous uh, material? There are probably some analogous uh, sorts of things in the climate uh, debate, uh, you know, because they're, it's finally the tide has turned and people are paying less attention to uh, scientists who, who uh, so doubt about climate change. But in the chemical arena, um, it's, it's still in place. And uh, I think it is, I don't know if it's, it's probably not, truly unique to the United States because very similar processes are going on in Europe and there's a great deal of uh, cooperation um, between, say, the American Chemistry Council and the, some of the European industry groups so that, you know, influence over chemicals regulation in both the European Union and the United States is sort of in the same place. It may, they may have different outcomes. But one of the things I was very struck by uh, while we were working on this story is that, you know, the regulatory system generally relies on what regulatory toxicologists say the science is. But there's a whole huge body of other research that has sprung up just since about 1990 that is the health effects research. It's done by usually by academics um, at universities, publicly funded universities. It's usually funded by the National Science Foundation or some other government um, pipeline for funding of research. Um, and it looks into the actual, you know, effects on biological systems of exposure to the chemicals. But the regulatory system pays much less attention to that body of science that, than it does to the toxicology science. So there's, a, there's an alienation between these two. It's not really two types of science. There's regulatory toxicology and then the other... The other scientists are like endocrinologists, um, epidemiologists, um, developmental biologists. There's all kinds of different disciplines that are coming together to look at the health effects, but they're not talking too much with the regulatory toxicologists. And in fact, as we noted in our our story, they actually yell at each other sometimes at meetings, you know, because of this um, disagreement. So at some point, I want to see. You know, I'd like to see the scientists reconcile the science um, so that we knew whether we could rely on the kind of modeling that the toxicologists do that often favors the position that the chemical industry wants, you know, and maybe what are the limitations of the health effects uh, research. But both sides need to somehow come to a table and give the rest of us some kind of coherent account of what the science tells us about what these chemicals are doing to us and all the other organisms on the planet. So, but let me follow up on that, Valerie. So do you think that regulatory toxicology is a sham or, 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 or is there a debate even within regulatory toxicology about the way in which they, uh, you know, for instance, use this computer modeling, use this bad science to push forward their ideas of what chemicals should not be regulated? Well, um, I think there's some of that going on. Uh, you know, there are there are toxicology is a a fairly old discipline, and there are different branches of it. Um, you know, there are people that study what happens when you get bit by a snake. You know, that there's there's a whole branches of kind of poison control toxicology and over you know drug overdose toxicology and all that sort of thing. But um, it's true that the re- the people that work on the regulatory side. Um, tend to rely on this uh, physiologically-based pharmacokinetic modeling um, that we talk about in our story. And, you know, there, 
there are toxicologists on both sides. And one of the people that we talked to was Linda Birnbaum, who's the uh, head of the uh, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, and she's a toxicologist. But uh, she noted that the PBPK studies that the regulatory toxicologists rely on often don't tell us anything about the actual effect of a chemical on the human body. They tell us how it gets in, where it goes, which organs break it down, how fast it, how fast or you know slowly it uh, gets out of the body, what uh, sort of uh, chemicals are created in the breaking down of the original chemical that may be even more toxic than the than the than the original one. So it's not entirely that you know regulatory toxicological models are always bad, but you know it's the same thing as in computer programming, garbage in, garbage out. You have to be very careful about what you put in your model. And if you don't put in the, you know, full range of effects and processes and so on and take into account the health effects from other research, then you're not going to get a very accurate picture. We are speaking with Valerie Brown and Elizabeth Grossman, investigative journalists who co-wrote the In These Times story, Why the United States Leaves Deadly Chemicals on the Market. Valerie was honored by the Society of Environmental Journalists in 2009 for her writing on epigenetics. Elizabeth is an award-winning journalist specializing in science and and environmental issues. She is the author of 2007's High-Tech Trash, Digital Devices, Hidden Toxics, and Human Health. Uh, Elizabeth, you write that uh, our investigation traces the web of influence to a group of scientists working for the Department of Defense in the 1970s and 1980s, the pioneers of PBK modeling. This is the computer modeling that regulatory toxicologists use instead of the direct observation that people like endocrinologists and biologists use. It quickly became clear that this type of modeling could be manipulated to minimize the appearance of chemical risk. PBPK methodology has subsequently been advanced by at least two generations of researchers, including many from the original DOD group, who moved between industry government agencies and industry-backed research groups, often with little or no transparency. So what these gentlemen were doing for the Department of Defense is they were trying to determine if this chemical that was in military materiel was having a negative impact, was hazardous to soldiers in the field. So, Elizabeth, please help me turn down my <laughs> conspiracy theory-o-meter theory- <laughs> uh, because I'm starting to see a military-industrial complex issue. The military actually coming up with manipulative ways for industry to profit at the expense of the taxpayer's bottom line in physical health. With all due fairness, I suspect that was not the original intent. Oh, um, thank God. Thank in, God. In, in hindsight, that's maybe how it appears, but that was not actually the original intent. And I think what um, one of the things that was so fascinating to us as we uncovered all of this was the coincidence of things that were happening at that time, particularly in the 19, late 1970s and 1980s. It was the time at which the United States major environmental laws were coming into, they were being created, they were being implemented. Again, the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, as we now know it, uh, the Toxic Substance Control Act, the various related uh, laws that require companies that in industry that use large amounts of chemicals to report on what they're using and storing and releasing to the environment to at least in some fashion inform the local community what's at their facilities even though that's still not very expensive but some of these things were done in reaction to the 1984 Bhopal disaster and another really serious deadly chemical leak that happened in West Virginia um, about the same time. And all of a sudden, the chemical industry was being called upon to account for what it was releasing into the environment. It was being asked to account for the toxicity of the chemicals it was using. And it just happened to be at the same time that these researchers at the Department of Defense at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio were doing this research, trying to come up with ways to assess 
the hazards of the chemicals that were being used in military equipment, but a really important uh, component of that was also trying to figure out the toxicity of these chemicals in relation to the environmental cleanup that they were likely going to be asked to do because laws like Superfund were coming into effect. And the military, the Department of Defense, is one of the largest users of hazardous chemicals in the country and is responsible for a huge number of toxic environmental releases, things that happened actually way back in the 70s and 80s in many cases and are still being grappled with in terms of cleanup today. So all this stuff was happening at once. And it was also the time at which computers were rapidly evolving from things that were too enormous for anybody to use in their personal office to having smaller desktop computers. And a number of the people we spoke with um, who were doing this research at this time remarked on the fact that all of a sudden you didn't have to just deal with some humongous, you know, one computer for an office facility to desktop computers. And this kind of calculation that was being done in this chemicals modeling could be done at your desk. And all of a sudden, these all of these things were coming together. And it became apparent that this kind of modeling, this computer modeling for chemicals, could be done in a way that would focus on very specific chemical behaviors and health effects um, that could narrow the results. And this turned out to be very, very useful if you wanted to delay the regulation of a chemical that could have numerous different kinds of health effects. So not exactly a concerted conspiracy, but in fact, a number of the people we spoke to for the story remarked on how what could be a very neutral sort of modeling technique has ended up being very, very useful if you want to defend a chemical as an industry with an interest in that product. Valerie, that leads me to kind of a bigger picture question, I think. So there was a demand for people and groups that could do chemical risk assessments following uh, the creation of organizations like the EPA and OSHA. And then it seems like industry filled that void instead of civil society. And industry, because it seems like they could create regulators far faster because they have far more resources than civil society. Do you think that's a lesson that we should learn when things are being regulated, that that doesn't necessarily mean that is going to be regulated by an objective source, that, in fact, it's very possible that industry can create those regulators at a far greater pace, even giving them more economic incentives than civil society might get? I think that's true uh, to some extent. That I mean, we know that, you know, usually the revolving door when we talk about uh, political lobbying and so on, everybody knows K Street, you know, you can make a lot more money in K Street working than you could when you were actually an elected representative. Um, but uh, it's, so there's, there's that kind of traffic which we documented between especially the FDA and the um, EPA, and uh, there's numerous private consultancies that were started by some of these same people that were working at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for the military. And they've kind of, there's probably two generations of those now. And, um, but there's also a, a phenomenon which we didn't, I don't think anybody else had really looked at this very much, which, which is that um, the, the EPA, for example, when it's going to look at a chemical, will often um, have a, sci a scientific advisory board or a committee that they appoint of experts from supposedly all the stakeholders. Um, and that committee will review the evidence and then make a recommendation to the agency. But sometimes the agency actually farms out the entire process to a private uh, consultancy where they choose the people that are going to be on the committee, they choose the literature that's going to be reviewed, they write the agenda for the meeting, um, and they write the report that goes to the agency. So these are all opportunities for the whole system to be weighted in favor of uh, decisions that will favor the, um, the industry. And, you know, you have to wade through a lot of a lot of multi-thousand-page <laughs> agency documents and so on to figure out who did the actual work on this project, you know, and it's often a private consultancy, often funded 
sometimes the exact same research topic, they're getting money from the government and they're getting money from the industry at the same time. So they're sort of feeding from both, both troughs. So that's a whole area that needs to be further um, revealed and investigated and analyzed and done so in a transparent manner so people just at least know who is really at the table. You know, because if you go and look at who came to this meeting, you know, members of the public, they'll, they'll be like a, a, a meeting report and it'll say, you know, all the, the people on the committee were here and then there was testimony from members of the public. Well, if you go and look at who the members of the public are, they're usually from a chemical company. <laughs> There's very little, you know, input by people that are not by just someone off the street or someone from a, a, a non-governmental organization involved in, um, you know, analyzing the effects of chemicals. It's, so there's just lots and lots of little pathways and little threads that are involved, you know, kind of behind the scenes that affect the, what they mostly do is slow the process down. You know, they, they, I think they're happy, usually the industry would just, is happy enough with a delay you know, they don't, they might not want to be pushing right this minute for uh, a decision that would say, no, this chemical is absolutely safe and we're never going to worry about it again. They will just be glad if they can introduce doubt uh, into the process. And then the regulators, if they think there's some doubt, they often just say, well, we need to, you know, further research is needed. Uh, Elizabeth, you write that PB. PK models can be customized to provide results that work to industry's advantage. And as Valerie was saying earlier, garbage in, garbage out is kind of how this computer modeling goes. But to what extent is this purpose, uh, purposeful and intentional fraud? And if given to a government agency, isn't that fraudulent evidence based on the wrong data that was intentionally input a crime? Can you legally give false or misleading data to regulators while they're determining the safety and risk of household chemicals? That's what um, makes this so insidious. And we actually had to be very, very careful in writing the story. And the, the tricky thing is, is that these studies, these models, these PPPK studies in and of themselves are not... I, I don't think anybody could label them as fraudulent or, I mean, some, yeah, there are lots of these studies, people have said there are flaws in them, but they have a certain, for some of them, for a lot of them at least, they have a certain kind of integrity unto themselves. But the problem, as so many of our sources on the biological and endocrinological endocrinology side, um, epidemiology side of the equation explained to us, it's that they look far too narrowly at what the possibilities are um, of how a chemical could behave. And that, in fact, is what at least got me interested in tracking down where these kind of studies had come from, because they just so consistently appear to contradict what the biologists were finding in terms of health effects. So it's not, it's not that these studies are wrong or that they're fraudulent. They're exceptionally limited in what they're showing. And the outcome is, as Valerie was saying, is to delay the process, cast doubt on the health effects findings. And they've been very, very successful in doing that in part because the review committees, the selection of the studies that are looked at by these scientific review committees that are assembled by the EPA have all been weighted in the favor of looking at these types of industry-generated studies. So it would probably be easier if someone could come up and out and say, these are all wrong. Somebody's submitted completely falsified data, but that's not the case. They're tipped in their balance. They're very narrowly focused. And the outcome is really to extend delays, to cast doubt. And so it's not as simple as saying this is bad, this is just wrong, even though a number of lots of scientists will say these studies are badly flawed. You can't just throw them all out and say this is wrong, this is illegal, somebody has done something. Um, that's completely unacceptable in terms of what they've submitted to the government. So it's much more complicated. 
And the whole system is currently weighted in favor of allowing this to happen. And in fact, when we asked the EPA to comment on what seemed to be very obvious conflicts of interest, they say that there isn't a conflict of interest in the system. And in fact, the EPA's own Office of Inspector General and the Government Accountability Office have asked questions in numerous reports about this. And the way the system's set up, what we've documented is completely permittable to happen. That's the really stunning and horrifying part. Valerie, you write, further blurring the public-private line is the industry-linked CIIT hammer group that uh, does some testing, PBPK testing, has received millions of dollars in both industry and taxpayer money. The group stated on its website in 2007 that $18 million of its $21.5 million annual operating budget came from the chemical and pharmaceutical industry. Information about its corporate funders is no longer detailed there, but Hammer has previously listed as clients and supporters the American Chemical Council, formerly the CMA, and one of the most powerful lobbyists against chemical regulation, as well as as the American Petroleum Institute, BASF, Bayer Crop Science, Dow, ExxonMobil, Chevron, and their Formaldehyde Council. At the same time, over the past 30 years, CIIT Hammer has received nearly $160 million in grants and contracts from the EPA, DOD, and Department of Health and Human Services. In sum, since the 1980s, these federal federal agencies have awarded hundreds of millions of dollars to industry affiliated research institutes like Hammer. Are we spending hundreds of millions of dollars on sham science that allows known toxic chemicals into our homes, a sham science that was originally used to manipulate data on the toxicity of military equipment to those in the U.S. military? Like Lizzie said, it's it's not exactly sham science. Um, But yes, we are spending hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, I personally drove myself completely insane by trying to figure out the closest totals that uh, I could determine. And I looked at a lot of uh, databases that report on um, grants and contracts issued by various federal agencies. And it's really, really hard to to know that you've got the right number because you can, they cover different years. Some of them cover different agencies. They're, um, you know, so it's sort of a, you have to clean your data up a lot, and um, but we, you know, we did determine that there are multiple hundreds of millions of dollars that are being um, issued in grants, research grants, and contracts for things like scientific advisory board work and that sort of thing uh, to many of these private consultancies. And the Hamner Institute is really at sort of at the center of things because, as you noted, it, it was um, it used to be called the Chemical Industry Institute for Toxicology. And I think it was 2007 they changed their name to the Hamner Institutes, and they have several different subgroups. Um, and they did that right about the time that the EPA decided that it was going to start making um, uh, cooperative research and development agreements with outside agencies. And Hamner is a nonprofit organization. It's not a, a closely held private company. So, you know, they qualify for uh, any kind of grant or um, uh, contract that would have to be issued, you know, to, to a, a nonprofit uh, organization. But they also, as you noted, take you know, have taken and continue to take a lot of money from the industry. And um, this is one of the you know, big issues is that the regulatory agency does, you know, there's no daylight anymore between the regulatory agency and the regulated entities. And a lot of this is being sort of facilitated by um, the private consultancies and some of the nonprofits that, you know, the EPA farms out a tremendous amount of research because it has been basically gutted by uh, budget cuts and so on over the last 20 years so that they don't have the in-house structure to do their own tests um, and their own, you know, analysis. I mean, they eventually do, but they, but they like I said, they, uh, they analyze material that's 
organized and presented to them by other parties. So um, there's a lot of money going out from uh, the public funding to uh, non-transparent um, private and, and non-profit uh, groups that are um, closely connected to the industry. And to just to show how dangerous these chemicals can possibly be, Elizabeth, why don't we frighten our listeners and tell them exactly how toxic is my hair salon where I have my hair done every week? <laughs> well, I hope you're. I'm hoping for your sake, your your own hair salon is um, not that toxic. But um, yeah, one of the chemicals we focused on just because it's so well known and it's such a sadly classic example of delay in regulation that has been um, dragged out um, largely because of the kind of studies we highlight is formaldehyde. And a lot of people are probably familiar with formaldehyde as it's used uh, in the glues and other materials that put together um, manufactured wood products like plywood and became completely awfully notorious for adverse really serious health effects when it was discovered that these kind of wood products were in so many of the trailers that FEMA had provided to people fleeing the disasters after um, Hurricane Katrina. Um, but formaldehyde has also long been used in um, personal care products and cosmetics, including in hair care products. And a few years ago, it made headlines because it turns out that a whole lot of hair salon workers were getting sick, headaches, nausea, dizziness, nosebleeds, other crashes uh, when they were using some kind of hair smoothing and straightening product that was being sold under the name Brazilian Blowout. But that's just one of many, many products that are still on the market that contain either formaldehyde or other chemicals that can release formaldehyde. And OSHA and the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health issued hazard alerts and warnings. And one of the company, a couple of the companies that make these products were warned that they had to change the labels to make this explicit. But the fact is the regulations don't allow any of the government agencies that oversee these types of products to pull these things from the market. So they're still out there. They just might have better labels. And it's it's really tricky for consumers to avoid these things entirely because there are dozens of different chemical names that could appear on a label that could release formaldehyde. Um, but that's, you know, just a terrible and perfect example of what happens when these kind of chemicals can't be um, protectively regulated and restricted in a way that will make sure that people, whether they're working in a hair salon or buying something off of, you know, their local store shelf and bringing it home, aren't going to be exposed to this stuff. You know, uh, this made me think about a story that I've heard in recent years. Uh, you quote regulatory toxicologists who support PBPK, yet acknowledge its limitations. And so, Valerie, you write how toxicologist James Lamb, who worked for the NTP and EPA in the 1980s and is now principal scientist at the consulting firm Exponent, says PBPK models are always going to be limited by the quality of the data that go into them. You also quote the late health, of, you also uh, quote the late health effects researcher Louis Guillette, a professor of the Medical University of South Carolina, famous for studies on DDT's hormone-disrupting effects in Florida alligators, who said, PBPK? My immediate response, as you were saying earlier, junk in, junk out. The take-home is that most of the models are only as good as your understanding of the complexity of the system. I recently, like in the last few years, have been hearing more and more people saying that what Rachel Carson said in her worries about DDT and the silent spring where you could not hear any wildlife outside because they'd been killed off by DDT, that those concerns were completely unfounded. And that led me to think, is that recent debunking of the concerns for DDT, was this all based on the same industry-backed man uh, manipulable science? Hmm. Lizzie, did you want to say something? Um, um, I was just going to say it's sort of a bottom line, yes. Um, again, the answers are always 
really complicated. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, um, Valerie, you can jump in. But, yes, the debunking is always part of this effort on the part of those who are defending chemical industry interests to look really, really narrowly and say, we don't think this could actually be happening. We are not sure that these effects can be attributed to this by looking at very tiny little slices. And, well, yeah, all these people in a factory might have lung disease, but we're, we're not going to be able to say, based on our type of studies, that our chemical was causing that lung disease. And the upshot is, is you know, the guys in that factory, they have lung disease, and if you slice and slice the numbers a different way, you'll, you'll be able to um, connect the exposure with the effect. Uh, Valerie, do you want to add, add something to that? Yeah, well, in the case of DDT, I mean, this is another example of the kind of the way that, um, you know, uh, messages are uh, constructed for the public. Uh, you know, we know, we have known about the deleterious effects of DDT since it was first started being used during World War II. We didn't know the extent and exactly the type of the endocrine disruption um, uh, effect, but it's, you know, it's never really been true that we believe wholeheartedly that it had no bad effect on uh, non-target organisms. But what a lot of times the argument is presented that the the health effects and the endocrine disruption effects of DDT are relatively minor compared to the benefit of using DDT uh, to kill mosquitoes that, that transmit malaria. And so if we decide we don't want to use DDT and we don't want it to be uh, used in the rest of the world, we're, you know, dooming millions uh, of people to die. And so when, you know, your ordinary citizen is presented with a choice like that, it's really hard to know, uh, you know, which way to go on that, because very few people want to kill millions of their fellow human beings on the planet, you know, but at the same time, they don't want their sons to be feminized by exposure to DDT in the womb or whatever, you know. So there, there, are, there are lots of ways to manufacture doubt in the mind of the person who's trying to decide, make a moral choice, and that DDT is a classic example. When there are actually, they boil it down to two choices. Either we use it and we save millions, or we, or we don't use it and we kill millions. You know, and that, that I think uh, with malaria, there, that's not the only two possibilities we're, that we could choose from. We have been speaking with investigative journalists Valerie Brown and Elizabeth Grossman, who co-wrote the In These Times story, Why the United States Leaves Deadly Chemicals on the Market. Valerie is a journalist specializing in environmental health, climate change, and microbiology. In 2009, she was honored by the Society of Environmental Journalists for her writing on epigenetics. Elizabeth is an award-winning journalist specializing in science and environmental issues and is author of several books, including 2002's Watershed, The Undamming of America. So the last question that we have for our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate the response. So I have one for each of you. Valerie, you write, the clock is ticking. As Washington State University geneticist Pat Hunt told in these times, if we wait to make regulatory decisions for proof in the form of compelling human data, it may be too late for us as a species. Valerie, what will kill us first, climate change or hazardous chemical exposure? Oh, man. Uh, well, they're both kind of a slow death. I think they're, and they're, they're probably going to be intertwined in many ways. Um, I think the climate change is probably going to be responsible for very large sort of massive disasters. Uh, and, but, you know, the... The thing from the quote from Pat Hunt, you know, their sperm counts in the world overall have dropped by 50% in 50 years. And what Pat Hunt is worried about, and many other people that study reproductive endocrinology and so on, is that, you know, there may come a point where we as a species are unable to reproduce. And you could say, well, that might be a good thing because then we'd have fewer people on the planet and blah, blah, blah. But um, either way, you know, as my mother used to say, <laughs> you know, I would tell her, 
about some horrible thing that was happening, and she would say, well, I'll be dead by then. Nice. Well, that's a great answer from hell. Uh, Elizabeth, I have one for you, uh, seeing as how the EPA, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, all happened under the auspices of President Richard Nixon. My question for you, Elizabeth, is how large is the portrait of Richard Nixon that you have in your home? <laughs> it's, it's, it's non-existent. <laughs> uh, that's, an, that's an easy question to answer. Um, I, yeah, I think the, the partisanship on that, I suspect, was I'm not an absolute expert on that period in history, but I suspect it was more um, a confluence of events than it was um, Richard Nixon's personal politics. Because that's what I've always been told. The two things I always hear is, well, you opened up China and he created the EPA, so he's the greatest president ever. Uh, We hope not. (laughs) Thank God. All right, Elizabeth, I really appreciate both of you being on the show with us today. Valerie and Elizabeth, this article is amazing, and I think that our listeners would love reading it. They should go to our website right now. We have a direct link to it, or they can go to the In These Times website. Again, Why the United States Leaves Deadly Chemicals on the Market, written by investigative journalists Valerie Brown and Elizabeth Grossman. I truly appreciate you being on the show today and uh, thanks so much and please keep us in contact if you guys do more work on this will do thank Thank you very much all right take care yeah thanks so much you've been listening to a this is hell interview for more hell visit thisishell.com Hello again. This is Lindsay. Here in hell. This is how you were just listening to an interview recorded on November 28th, 2015 with Elizabeth Grossman, author and journalist specializing in science and environmental issues, and Valerie Brown, a journalist specializing in, in environmental health, climate change, and microbiology. So, yeah, you guys just heard it, I hope. And forget what I was about to say. Oh, yeah, well, that was with Chuck. Our <laughs> you heard Chuck Mertz interviewing them in 2015, but Chuck is on vacation right now. So that's why I'm here talking. And I don't think that there's a question from hell this week i was looking for one i didn't see one um i'm not very good at making them up so i'm not gonna make one up here on the spot but if anybody has any suggestions you can always email your suggestions for the question from hell dm on twitter i don't know maybe facebook message works too but anyways Again, you were just listening to an interview recorded seven years ago on bad science and worse politics keeping toxic chemicals in the environment. Elizabeth Grossman and Valerie Brown wrote an article that was published back in 2015 called Why the United States Leaves Deadly Chemicals on the Market. And earlier, before the show, I was just ranting about how I don't trust gurus and you shouldn't either. You know, what's that anarchist saying? Kill your gurus, something like that. But, you know, I'm also pretty slow to trust doctors and scientists who are like the gurus of science for those people whose science is their religion. I mean, or nature, I don't know. Science and, are science and nature different? I think that there are some social differences. But research has to get its money from somewhere. That's always something to think about when you're reading research. I'm not an expert. I have a degree in sociology and I have worked in social research before. So whenever I read social research now, I do it with the assumption that there is a ton of human error in the research that nobody, I just knocked over my bottle of kombucha. It did have the lid on it though. So we're good. But anyways, read research with the assumption that there's a ton of human error that nobody is owning up to because, I mean, 
That's just how it goes. I'm just going to assume it's the same thing for science research. Nothing really ever goes as planned. It's very hard. I mean, like, maybe social research is just hard to control. But my twin, I have a twin. My identical twin, Sabrina. She works in, uh, she has a degree in biochemistry. And she works in research at a children's hospital, actually. She does, uh, she's in the um, rheumatology department. So she's uh, working on pharmaceutical research for young kids with like chronic autoimmune conditions like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and i don't know it's hard she has to see uh kids get sold their only options are these studies to take some random immunosuppressant and you know autoimmune it seems to be from talking to her that environmental contamination really inflames the immune system and so that probably is playing a role in a lot of people's autoimmune systems i'm not a doctor never claim to be one don't want to be one just listen to how your body feels is you know <laughs> the only advice i want to give um well i think that's about all my time here today so thank you so much for tuning in if you tuned in shout out to the four listeners who mixler is telling me is here you guys are awesome um <laughs> but in other words tune in for tomorrow to hear dan dan hill play his picks and i think chuck's vacation is two weeks long but i probably should have checked my emails to make sure so we might be doing this again next week and Anyways, hope you guys are enjoying your August so far. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.